Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, welcome to tonight's event on digital platforms and the future of political solidarity. I'm Nick Caldry. I teach here in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, and I'll be chairing the discussion. But with Jeremy Gilbert at the end of the uh, platform, uh, who you'll hear from next, we've been planning this event for basically a year. And we wanted, as the pandemic was coming to an end, we wanted to bring together a wide range of speakers to address what we see as a fundamental challenge of our time. How to rethink how to renegotiate the undoubted mobilizing power of digital platforms, but to do it for positive political change, in spite of platforms' clear potential also for harm and their dominance by large-scale commercial interests. Platforms play a crucial role economically, socially, politically, but they remain very little regulated which is astonishing when we think about what platform power actually means. Platform power is basically the power to design the spaces in which human beings are able to interact together on all scales up to the global, a power that we have delegated to corporations who are interested mainly not in that but in profit. So how can this vast power be brought under social and community control? That seems to us an essential question to ask if we're interested at all in the conditions for positive political transformation on local, national and global scales. So what in other words, and this is our question tonight, what is the potential contribution of digital platforms to building the political solidarity that humanity needs if it's going to improve its long-term chances of survival. For example, by addressing climate change realistically. Those are the, some of the questions that we want to address tonight. Let me introduce now our speakers. Unfortunately, two planned speakers have had to pull out in the past few days for reasons completely beyond their control. Ben Little, due to a family bereavement, and Alex Williams, due to a, a, a sudden and violent sickness yesterday. Hopefully, we're wishing well. But we still have a very strong panel. First, Jeremy Gilbert, at the end, uh, from University of East London, author of many books, including 21st Century Socialism, and with Alex Williams as co-author, Hegemony Now, How Big Deck and Wall Street won the world and how we win it back. Jeremy will make some introductory comments in a moment as co-organizer, and then he'll speak in place of Alex later on. Second, Miria Georgiou, my colleague uh, in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, author of The Media City, and last year of The Digital Border with Lily Huliraki. Third, Miranda Hall, the Nanny Solidarity Network, and formerly with the New Economics Foundation. And then Jeremy will speak. And then last but not least, we have James Muldoon of University of Exeter Politics Department and also the Autonomy Think Tank and the author of the important recent book, Platform Socialism. And now before the rest of our panel, comments from Jeremy. Please feel free to sit. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Uh, hello, can everyone hear me okay? Thanks. 
Uh, well, Nick summed up very well why, why we're holding the event, so I, I don't need to detain us for too long. I think it's worth reflecting on um, the broader intellectual and political context for us deciding to initiate what we hope will be an ongoing project to think about the relationships between digital platforms and uh, the politics and practice of solidarity. Firstly, I think there is a good case for arguing that in some senses, platforms simply def define our age uh, in a way that no other technology or institution or observable phenomenon does. And this is an observation I first derived from a conversation with uh, the great uh, radical economist Robin Murray, uh, to whom I'd like to pay tribute now. R Robin died a couple of years ago. Robin had a long association with this institution, with the LSE. But Robin was also one of the most creative and dynamic economic thinkers in, in Britain, uh, ever, I would say, really. Uh, Robin, in particular, became known to uh, an audience well beyond uh, academic economics from the 1980s onwards, because in the 80s, it was really his articles uh, in the notorious and famous British magazine Marxism Today uh, it was these articles that popularized the concept of post-Fordism as a way of understanding the economic, institutional, technological, cultural and social changes which Britain was going through and that other places in the world were starting to go through in the 1980s. I don't have time for an exposition of the concept of post-Fordism. You'll have to take my word for it that it was important. Um, in fact, for me, it's been very important. It's always been uh, very important to me as a teacher I think, you know, my, my, uh, my favorite lecture ever to give to students is, is the one where I start by telling them I'm going to explain how a small change in the nature of inventory management in the uh, retail sector in the early 1980s led to a completely different kind of society and almost everything that we now know uh, and proceed to give them essentially Robin's account of post-Fordism and its relationship to the emergence of what came to be called post-modernity. So it's a very important concept for me uh, and I was, interview I was interviewing Robin uh, with Andy Goffey from Nottingham uh, for the journal New Formations, I think 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. Um, we were interviewing him for a special issue. You can still find the, the interview online for free. And I said to him, I said, Robin, are we still in post-Fordism? He said, no, no, no. We're in the age of platforms. And, um, and, for me, and I thought, well, if Robin says post-Fordism is over, we're in the age of platforms, I better start thinking about platforms. <laughs> And I think this remains a very, this is a very interesting heuristic through which to think about a, a whole range of contemporary social, political, and economic phenomena. And while platforms have clearly now emerged as a definitive, as a definite object of study in various uh, domains, especially in media studies, especially in Dutch media studies for some reason, I think uh, we're yet really to get to the point of grasping uh, what it means to, th to think about them as a lens through which to understand a, a historic epochal shift that we've been living through since, since about 2005. So that's part of the context for us thinking that this is an important question, an important project. And, and when, we get back, when we get to the bit where you, are, you have the um, exciting honour of hearing me speak for a second time, then I will uh, talk about that a bit more. But also the question, the question is also, and it suggested toward this, I mean, why solidarity? Why should solidarity be, the question of solidarity, be the lens through which we ask questions about the political valency of platforms? Well, in many ways, I think one can make a case that solidarity is the great political and uh, ethical, even, question of our age. Although people have been making that argument since the 
you know, middle of the second half of the 19th century. It's not a very new, not a very new observation. That part of the problem with capitalism is that it breaks down relations of solidarity, and the question of what you then replace them with is, in some sense, always the question which industrial and post-industrial societies find themselves faced with. But I think solidarity, there's a particular urgency for us about bringing to bear this question, because I would say that to date, at least in the English language, a lot of the critical work that has focused on the question of platforms, their politics, uh, their applications, has been coming from, I would say, a, a, essentially a liberal perspective, which is primarily concerned with issues of individual privacy, individual agency, the question of surveillance. And while the, these are all legitimate questions to ask, I'm not sure that the analyses that result from focusing on those questions are really able, a lot of the time, to get to grips with the most fundamental questions which platform capitalism poses for us which are really questions, are classical questions in the critique of capitalism and responses to it, which are the question of what does it mean to maintain forms of collective agency and collective power in a world in which resources have been, become so thoroughly concentrated in the hands of private institutions and corporations, even while the capacity of those technologies and institutions to aggregate very, on very large scales uh, forms of human agency and human interaction is still very impressive. So I think for us, a focus on the question of solidarity, on the question of the extent to which platforms exhibit both solidaristic and anti-solidaristic, deeply anti-solidaristic tendencies and potentials is a really useful lens through which to think about the question. Um, so I think, uh, I hope you'll agree that we think this is a very useful uh, set of topics to bring together. Uh, we're hoping that this would be the beginning of an ongoing conversation involving these participants uh, and many others in how we go forward in thinking about these issues into the 21st century. Great. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And now we go into our main panel, Miriam. Thank you. Um, it's, it's great to be part of this panel, uh, uh, of this panel. Thank you both for the invite. Um, so that's a big question that is being asked here. And of course, political solidarity can be approached from different perspectives. I, uh, just to start with, just to say that I'm um, thinking about political solidarity as this is situated within the long histories and trajectories of progressive activism, especially as this takes its meanings uh, at the urban and transnational margins. And the few observations I want to share here with you come from uh, my research, my, uh, my thinking in relation to work that I have been doing over many years with migrant and urban solidarities. So I want to make three main points which hopefully will make some contribution to this discussion. So the first point I would like to start with as we start this conversation on political solidarity and platforms uh, it's an invite to think about what we can take for granted and perhaps what we shouldn't be taking for granted. When we're thinking about the system of rights that we are, are, are talking about, the system of rights to be defended through political solidarity. So I think it's important to make a fundamental point that not everyone who needs or enacts political solidarity is actually a citizen protected within a liberal democratic system of rights and from institutions and regulations that in their flaws and limits within liberal democracy, we assume that uh, will uh, protect at least some of those fundamentals. 
And very often, when we talk about uh, the erosion of autonomy and freedom, and of, of course, when we talk about the erosion of autonomy and freedom on platforms, we often, often assume that starting point, those fundamental rights of citizenship. But we have to remember, of course, uh, that many marginalized populations do not have those rights at all, or very limited uh, access to those rights, or when they have those rights, sometimes they're empty signifiers. So for them, uh, 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 populations such as uh, uh, racialized urban minorities or migrants, who are the people are more, um, are more engaged with, uh, the concerns that we often raise uh, and which are the heart of our critique of uh, platform capitalism and data colonialism are long-standing experiences. So surveillance, preemptive punishment, deep uh, exploitation of every element of people's lives is something that certain populations have been experiencing for a long time and often across generations. This does not mean, of course, that platforms do not make a difference. And I think uh, Jeremy's comments already invited us to think the before and after, the past and the present, the trajectories from the past and the future. Um, but what is important to think, if we start about addressing this question about political solidarity and what uh, the, the risks and opportunities of platforms, perhaps if we start by thinking from the margins, as Bell Hook invites us to do, uh, rather than from the center, we have to understand those questions and those challenges in relation to those deeply embedded economies and geographies of already existing and established and very sophisticated systems of surveillance and exploitation of all different elements of life. The second point that I want to make uh, relates to the political geography of rights for those who do not have rights. So taking long-term, uh, long-standing experiences of exclusion from politics and uh, uh, regulated systems of rights for many populations, populations from the margins often do not have a choice but to enact solidarity, to mobilize, to try to represent communities on platforms. So for many migrants, which is uh, uh, the main focus of my work, for example, this happens for two reasons. As migrants, or many migrants, or definitely migrant activists and uh, uh, um, formations that make collective claims, as they have very little, if any, access to other spaces of visibility and representation, such as public sphere, mainstream media, they have no choice but to use that only space that at least appears as open and democratic. They do so depend on platforms, either they like it or not, um, because much of the politics of solidarity from, this, uh, from the margins has to remain invisible. And it has to remain uh, invisible because this is uh, uh, many forms of political solidarity from the margins, as we know, is being prosecuted. So in, in many ways, when uh, uh, migrant activists are trying to stay off the radar of state surveillance, 
and uh, effectively prosecution, they have to enact political solidarity on platforms. So there is a paradox here that the, uh, migrant solidarities depend on platforms, both because uh, uh, within the context of infrastructures of surveillance that we know and other people will be talking about, but also because of the affordances of the platforms that can disguise identities and thus help uh, subaltern populations escape surveillance. And then the third and the final point I want to share relates to those risks that uh, platforms present to political mobilization and solidarity. And for people, uh, for um, uh, populations from the margins, again, such as migrants, especially if we talk about undocumented migrants, uh, certain racialized uh, urban populations, digital uh, political solidarities are always high risk and there's no way around it. So solidar solidarity is a risky business. If it's not platform surveillance, then it's state surveillance on platforms. But again, if we start from the margins, we can also reflect not only on what is impossible, not only in about what is very difficult, but also what is possible. And for many migrants, political agency, both individual and collective, emerges through and as a response of the need to sol uh, for solidarity in a highly surveyed and exploitative environment. This includes, of course, platforms. That means that uh, uh, when it comes to platforms, tactics of resistance cannot be expressed as getting off the platforms but it is expressed very often as hacking the platform order. And what does this mean? Most importantly, and I am aware that this might sound as a, a generalization, but it's uh, uh, the three uh, final observations that I want to make. So uh, what we see is different forms of commoning, for example, where migrant solidarities are more often than not expressed in loose, flexible and decentralized networks that shift between invisibility and visibility. Migrant political solidarities also come with tactics of diffusion of, of voice, and diffusion of voice also means diffusion of risk. Commoning tactics, for example, involve different actors who speak with different, uh, at different times so that algorithmic uh, tracking of individuals become more difficult. And finally, managing risks means enacting solidarity itself locally and transnationally and collectively, where migrants are not struggling for rights on their own, but organize um, across uh, 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 collectives that include migrants, activists, citizens, and not citizens, in a way that doing solidarity is about hugging the platform order while also hugging the national and racial order. Thank you. Thanks, Jem and Nick, for inviting me. Thanks, Maria. That's really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to pivot a bit and look at um, these guys. So looking at how solidarities are essential for these tech founders in order to capture, consolidate, and maintain their hegemonic power. So. I suppose we're looking at strategic solidarities, hegemonic solidarities, and especially uh, patriarchy and patriarchal networks. 
So when Trump was inaugurated in 2016, one of the first things that he did was to call these tech founders and CEOs from Silicon Valley uh, to Trump Tower. And even though you know, these companies, these uh, mainly men, are democratic voters, obviously, you know, strategic as well, and thinking about how they can negotiate their power under Republican governments. And one of the key brokers of this meeting is Peter Thiel, who you can see sitting next to Trump there. So Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, founder of Palantir, uh, key, he's a key uh, broker, networker, founder, sitting on, uh, on boards, funder in Silicon Valley, and he sort of, he's the, he's the face that Silicon Valley don't want to be, I suppose, and yeah, so he brokered this meeting with Trump. So around this table, we can see Jeff Bezos, um, Larry Page at Google, Sheryl Sandberg, Sandberg came instead of Mark Zuckerberg, and then off screen, there's Elon Musk, and around the table, it's all male uh, founders and CEOs, and there's uh, three women, including Shell Sandberg, Ivanka Trump, and then the CEO of Oracle and the C CEO of IBM. Um, so, I'm not going to be able to talk about all these pictures, but um, so this is the PayPal Mafia, and this picture was taken in 2007 for Fortune magazine. And again, we can see Peter Thiel at the front of this um, image. And um, one of the interesting things about this image is obviously there's irony in it. You know, they're playing, they're pretending to be gangsters, they're drinking whiskey, they've sort of this humorous sort of very masculine look into the camera. But what's interesting is also what they are playing and why they've decided to play this. So these are, these are the uh, PayPal Mafia, self-called PayPal Mafia, PayPal Mafia. Uh, brought together mostly by men from Stanford. Peter Thiel went to Stanford, and we can see uh, David Sachs there as well with Peter Thiel, and they both wrote a book while they're at Stanford called The Diversity Myth, which was an anti-feminist, anti-anti-racist screed. And Peter Thiel would say, you know, um, even though, so all these men in this, in this picture have gone on to be key players, funders, founders in Silicon Valley, and as Peter Thiel says, they all have continued to sing from the same hymn sheet. And the gap at the back is the two founders of YouTube. They went on to found YouTube, but Google asked for them to be removed because it didn't look like it didn't look good for Google. And then Elon Musk is also mi missing from that picture. So what's interesting is also the collaboration between uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk um, in, t in terms of forming PayPal. So what's uh, what we found is so. All this research has come from a book that I wrote with Ben Little called The New Patriarchs of Digital Capitalism, in which we were tracing these founders and thinking about what, whether we could call it a patriarchy. Um, I suppose when we started the book, it wasn't a very fashionable term. People um, feel uncomfortable with it. And we were trying to argue that you can talk about patriarchal networks in specific contexts, and patriarchal networks are specific to the context that they're in. So one of the methods in our book was um, we, oops, um, we ripped up 90 um, sort of airport books, books that were written about Silicon Valley or in Silicon Valley, so critical <coughs> and also complementary books on, about Silicon Valley. And uh, we, we, uh, we, we, uh, we did that in order to 
uh, make, try and make, see what links there were between the different founders, but also see what ideologies were sort of being played out as well in, the, in these books. Um, and we also combined this with looking at PR and media, media interviews, and we're looking mainly at the celebrity um, assemblage, so what is publicly available. So what we could find was, so we were looking at both the sort of performance of rivalry that is happening. So in terms of the performance of rivalry, we could see, like, for example, Musk and Bezos performing a rivalry over space. But actually what is really happening, say, for example, in space is space segmentation. So Musk is actually looking to sort of colonize Mars, whereas Bezos is looking to uh, create sort of cities in space. So they might perform rivalry, and this is a way to gloss or obfuscate the kinds of connections that they're actually making together. So the connections that we saw were around philanthropy, um, funding, um, and, and these kinds of things. Um, let me, I don't know if I've got time to... Yeah. Okay, so we've got two minutes. So I'll, I'll, shall I talk about... Let's talk about Jeff Bezos. Okay, so this is from a 2008-18 interview with Axel Springer in which uh, Jeff Bezos won an award. And it's just a really interesting photograph because of some of the um, symbols and images that are coming up in, the, in this image. So obviously we have his phallic rocket in the background, but we also have Texas, the sort of the Wild West. And the Wild West is a big part of the Jeff Bezos' myth. He talks about how he grew how he grew up in Texas with his grandfather on his grandfather's ranch and how he made things with his hands. And that's been part of the origin story of Amazon. So um, Amazon's desks were uh, initially made out of uh, doors, for example. But what is also interesting here is this idea of the Wild West and the way that these men, these founders, a lot of their legitimation and their origin myths of the boy genius, but also about colonizing cyberspace and using this language of the Wild West in order to legitimate and make sense of what they were doing. And so we were building on your work on data colonialism in that way, but also thinking about the specific co colonialism that was at play in these founding myths and these celebrity stories, which is um, white settler colonialism, which made us think about um, the Imani Perry's idea of patriarchal architecture. So Imani Perry is very influential for us in thinking through how to make sense of what patriarchy might be. And she talks about patriarchal architectures as being located in the 17th century white settler colonial household as imagined by John Locke with the white patriarch, the white wife, the children, the servants, and the slaves, and how, these, uh, how this assemblage can be, we can see it recurring, through, this imaginary recurring throughout many institutions and systems of power, and we could see this moving through or, or structuring the, the corporations that we were looking at, for example, like Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg at the top and the way that um, the, the workers are striated in terms of gender and, and race below, below the sort of founder um, and then thinking about how this is also baked into the, the products, baked into the design. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. And I owe you an apology, Alison, because, <laughs> because the order changed at the last minute. I missed time, mixed things around. And I, this was Alison uh, Winch from, from <laughs> Goldsmiths University of London, co-author of the wonderful book with Ben, ben Little on The New Patriarchs of Digital Capitalists, which I strongly recommend. Sorry about that. <laughs> but thank you very much, Alison. <laughs> and now next, Miranda.
Hello. Can you hear me? I can't actually see a lot of you, so hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, hi, I'm Miranda. Thank you for inviting me today. Um, and thank you, Maria and Alison. That was fascinating. Um, in the event description, I saw that it said that we've all written books on our topic, and I ha I've got to confess I've not written a book. Um, but hopefully I've got some, <laughs> some reflections I can share with you from my experience. Um, I'm going to talk today about political solidarity and digital platforms in the childcare sector. Um, so first I'm going to share a bit about childcare platforms, sort of platforms as they are now. Uh, building on that I'm going to talk about what I call research for resistance um, and a workshop that myself and Dahlia Gabriel ran last year, um, which involved power mapping. So how can we make our research useful um, in support of workers and communities building power um, against corporate consolidation? And then I'm going to talk a bit about Nanny Solidarity Network, which is a group that I have been working with for a few years now started up during the pandemic um, and lessons we can take from that in terms of worker solidarity but also solidarity between different kinds of workers um, and think trying to think through I, I don't know I think it was Alicia Garcia but the idea of solidarity as a verb and also how academics and students can show like meaningful solidarity um, with other workers um, sort of within and through digital platforms. So I did actually pull some slides together, but then I didn't send them over in time. Um, so I'm going to ask you to do some imagining. Um, so what we might have been watching now is a clip um, of some really inspiring new political solidarity between Uber um, and Bubble, which is a childcare app. Um, so Uber announced a few weeks ago in light of the government's announcements around childcare policy that they're trialing free childcare for drivers as part of an effort to encourage more parents of young children to sign up to the Minicab app platform. Um, and it will be offering 10 hours of free childcare for a thousand of its UK drivers. Um, one of the things I find really interesting about this is that Political solidarity is like really profitable now. It's cool to gesture towards like being feminist, being interested in like worker empowerment, um, and I guess the ultimate flimsiness of initiatives like this. It's part of, I guess, a much broader trend that's emerged in the last few years of digital platforms providing what's called sort of backup care um, for companies. So Bright Horizons, which is one of the private equity-backed Nursery chains in the UK has recently acquired a platform called My Family Care. Um, Care.com has launched a new service called Care at Work, um, which sort of partners with big employers. And they've got all of this kind of lean-in feminist, boss girl language around it. Productivity wants up, absenteeism wants down, and top talent wants in. Uh, and their aim is to promote more women to leadership positions and I guess the question is if you want to care for your workers or you want to support your workers to care more for those around them 
then you could pay them enough to feed their kids, or you could provide sick pay and parental leave, or <laughs> anything basic like that, but their whole business model is based on not paying those costs. Like, that's why they turn a profit. <laughs> Um, so instead, they've got this really clever idea, which is why don't we just shift all of that onto another precarious labor pool um, of migrant women on an app called Bubble, who are often getting paid less than minimum wage um, and have no proper mechanisms for supporting harassment or abuse that occurs on the platform. Going to zoom out a bit to think about the context of these childcare platforms. I think with research around platforms, we often like start with the platform, um, and instead, I think it's useful to think about like what is going on in the childcare sector. So there's like marketization with the huge dominance of corporate chains, and also a sort of erosion of working conditions um, over years. So how does the emergence of platforms fit into that? Um, like in what ways? Are platforms amplifying those trends or exacerbating them or you know altering them in certain ways we often talk about how platforms like uber have arisen out of the crisis of work um, with the weakening of trade unions and the dismantling of protections we can also think about how platforms like uber have arisen from a crisis of care so just like uber in the state seeks to exploit gaps in underfunded public transport infrastructure these childcare apps seek to plug a sort of care deficit, um, which has been created by the dismantling of public services, by the housing crisis, which is literally ripping apart people's families and communities of care, um, and people working longer hours for less money, which means that we don't have time to look after the people who we love. There's a quote from Langdon Winner, which is that technologies are a way of building order into our world. So what kind of order are childcare platforms building into our world? And how might they be reshaping the way that we care for each other? I think it is useful to think about these platforms as an infrastructure um, in terms of how they reshape these relationships. Um, in the case of childcare platforms, it's not just individual transactions between like a childcare worker and a family. They also increasingly mediate the relationships or create whole new relationships um, between nurseries and childcare agencies, between nurseries and local authorities, childminders and local authorities, childcare providers and family employers, workers and agencies. And I guess at a really basic level, when these platforms you know, are based on a for-profit model, they will be restructuring that whole sector in a way that accelerates marketization. Um, how long? How long? Do I have? Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about a workshop that we ran last year um, that we called "Childcare and Digital Platforms: Researching for Resistance." Um, and I'm not going to go into it because I want to talk about Nanny Solidarity Network. Um, but there's a tool called Little Sis um, that was developed by something called the Public Accountability Initiative um, in the states that is really exciting and it allows you to sort of draw links between different power holders um so what we did is we took um childcare platforms and then we sort of like built these whole maps around them of like who owns them um who invests in them and i think that allows you to draw out some really useful observations that have implications for how we organize so in terms of 
financialization, like what are the other companies um, who the holding company might own? Who are the workers in those companies? How might you like organize alongside them? I think they're really important points of leverage um, in terms of building solidarity. So for example, <coughs> care.com is owned by a company that also owns apps for handymen. What might sort of like carer and handyman solidarity look like? Nanny Solidarity Network, <laughs> really mindful of time, um, started off through WhatsApp groups. So in that sense, I think it's important to recognize that these are really important infrastructure for work or organize, you know, often you get sort of professional organizers coming in, but informal organizing has already been happening for years with migrant workers, um, I guess building on what Miria was saying, needing to support each other um, through these platforms. But I think, I guess I would emphasize like from our experience, just the importance of meeting in person. <laughs> Um, like you say, like nannies and au pairs are incredibly isolated workers, like literally within the walls of their employer's home. Um, so during the pandemic, or once the once lockdown was lifted, we started doing things like playgroups um, where workers could come along with the kids they're responsible for um, and start having conversations um, about what it means to organise together through the network. Um, and how they might get more involved, because otherwise they literally just didn't have an hour free um, to come along to a meeting, even a Zoom meeting. If you have a Zoom meeting in your employer's home, they will, they'll hear you through the walls. <laughs> um, so that's important. We've, we've also been set up a booking system. Um, it's not quite a platform yet. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> it's a Google form um, for groups and organizations who are organizing or campaigning to book childcare for their events um, through our network of members. Um, and our hope is that that might scale up into some kind of cooperative platform. And what I think is exciting about this project is that there's loads of research on platform cooperatives and it's like a really sexy idea, but it rarely like, comes from worker organizing. So I guess what we're doing is like starting off with mutual aid, then moving on to sort of like worker organizing a really rudimentary Google form and from that building a platform. So there's something about like where the starting point of an idea is um, and who develops those technologies. I wanted to talk about, um, yeah, sort of I'm gonna wrap up. <laughs> How can academics and students be useful? <laughs> um, so I think like papers and books are really amazing. Like I think we, we need that, it's really positive, but it's not actually gonna help build worker power. Um, but I think that academics have a lot of really practical, useful skills that can support grassroots groups. So things like writing grant applications, doing press releases, running social media, I would really encourage people to think about like ways in which if you, if you reach out asking for an interview or saying you wanna do a case study or something, how might you practically use your skills to support that group? Um, on that note, if anyone wants to book childcare for any conferences or events coming up, then, um, Come chat to me afterwards. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks very, thanks very much, Miranda. And now we're back to Jeremy. Okay. I'm on I'm on well, 
I was leaving you for the, the, the overarching vision at the end with platform socialism, if that's okay. But no, that's fine. Sorry, I thought Jeremy was going to wrap up everything. No, no, no. It's you who are. Yeah. I'm not trying to wrap <laughs> <up> this <with you. laughs> All right, so I'll do seven minutes. I'll probably one. All right, fine. That's good if I know. <clears throat> okay, hello again. Um, yeah, before anything else, I should point out, we've because uh, we're hoping this is going to be a sort of ongoing research and, and public project, we've uh, taken the uh, progressive step of setting up a Twitter account today. We thought it would be an easy way. So if you want, so um, do follow uh, Platform Solidarity on Twitter. That's the username. Um, and you'll find out what we're doing, if anything. So I'm going to talk, I'm mostly going to speak to the issue of how... Um, Alex Williams and I, in our book, Hegemony Now, have addressed the question of platforms, uh, to which we do devote uh, one chapter. The book is trying to think about a broad range of questions around how we understand and how we theorise the question of power in the 21st century, the question of who holds it and the ways in which it's exercised. And we're trying to work with and to some sense, in some senses update and refine uh, the Gramscian concept of hegemony, meaning essentially a term referring to the ways in which particular social groups are able to exercise positions, to adopt positions of leadership in so broad social formations, to, as we put it, to determine the direction of travel. And our argument is that in global terms, it's quite clear that if any single social group over the past few decades has demonstrated a capacity to, uh, to determine the direction of travel for broad social, cultural, economic and technological formations, is Silicon Valley. Uh, the way we like to frame that question is uh, to ask who won the 20th century? Who, who, who got the world they really wanted at the end of the 20th century? And our argument is it's exactly those people that Alison was sh showing us slides of. It's those guys. They're, they're the guys, if you, if you go back decades, when there were nobodies tinkering away in a garage and ask, well, what was their ideology? What was their vision of the world? What kind of world would they like to live in? They're, that's the world we're living in, more than anybody else's, more than Richard Nixon's, more than Henry Kissinger's, more than uh, anybody else's, if you go back far, that far. And platforms are obviously very important because the, uh, for reasons that we've already been discussing, uh, platforms have become the key technology and modality through which they've exercised that power and, and generated that power. And as, as commentators like Nick Cernicek have pointed out, that the shift to a world in which the leading edge of capitalism is these, these strange formations, these digital platforms, uh, is in some ways quite unexpected and in some ways it does mark quite a significant shift with the forms of capitalism that preceded it, particularly insofar as we've seen a real return to, at a global scale, uh, scale a logic of monopoly and a sort of logic of intermediation, a logic of a situation where these really, the, what seem to be the richest and most powerful organisations in the global capitalist matrix are organisations where they don't really do anything apart from they're just middle, they're sort of their intermediaries, they're classed for a range of other interactions. And to some extent, of course, that ex I would say that, ex that, that is those institutions exhibiting features of capitalism, which historians like Fernand Braudel have been arguing were, were fundamental to the nature of capitalism uh, for centuries, when Braudel was arguing it for decades. But, um, so to some extent, uh, there's arguably nothing particularly new about all this. And I think there is an open question, which we pose in the book without fully trying to resolve, as to what extent the logic of the platform is, the, the platform is, a, is 
is sort of applicable as a retrospective concept. We can see how platforms work now in, this, in, in, in exhibiting these capacities to both aggregate massively interactions between various kind of groups and individuals, but you could also apply it sort of retrospectively. You could say, well, maybe, maybe the Bank of England, for example, was always a sort of platform going back to the 1690s. Uh, so platform logic at a kind of abstract level, the logic of massive aggregation and also massive internal differentiation, which is a sort of double logic, which I would see as uh, characterizing the way in which platforms work, in some senses is just the logic of capitalism, as people like Marx had always identified it, but being carried on at you know, a higher level of intensity, in some senses. But on another level, at the level of a sort of proper political sociology, I think we have to say that the novel deployment of that logic under the circumstances of cybernetic technology has enabled these very, very specific groups, this very specific social group, exactly the social group that Alison was talking about, to, to arrive at and occupy a position of power which is in some ways historically unprecedented. Now, uh, we, and we suggest, following that remark of Robin Murray's that I mentioned earlier, that that means that we might be, uh, to use the language of uh, the School of Economics, which Robin partly drew on, the regulation school, we might be now in the epoch of a new regime of accumulation. This concept of regime of accumulation put forward by um, the founders of the regulation school, um, people like Boyer and Alieta, um, essentially argues that while capitalism has certain global, universal, abstract features, wage labor, commodification, a tendency to monopoly, concentration of capital, within given historical epochs, the technological parameters, the social parameters, the cultural parameters, will mean that the actual ways in which capital accumulation carries, is carried out will be quite variable. They'll vary quite significantly. But it's, it's, it's a very different prospect to be living in the capitalism of the 1890s or the 1950s or the, or the 2010s or the 2020s. So, and these various, these specific ways of understanding the way in which capitalism is done under those circumstances, we call regimes of accumulation. And one of our suggestions in the book is that platform capitalism has to be understood as a new regime of accumulation, meaning it is the new context in which everything is going to be happening, uh, both for better and for worse, whether we like it or not. So we think it has con considerable explanatory power in that sense. Now, under those circumstances, uh, the question of solidarity, about what forms of solidarity are possible or desirable, is going to be radically affected in the same way that pretty much any other political or ethical question is going to be affected. And I think one of the things we're interested in, one of the questions we're interested in in the book, although I can't say we can definitively answer it, is the question of, well, to what extent are, the, are these completely new experiences? To what extent are they continuous with previous historical moments? I think... Miria's remarks earlier were a very profound reminder that to some extent uh, the logic of platforms, capitalism, is what it's doing is it's subjecting all of us, it's subjecting privileged, uh, privileged people in the capitalist core to logics of exploitation and surveillance which other people have been subject to for a very long time. That's also a point made in the book by uh, uh, Ulysses Meas and, and some other guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually Nick, uh, Nick Caldry's uh, book. Um, the cost of connection, in which they argue that there's something about the logic of platform, what I call, I'm calling, following Nick Cernicek, platform capitalism, which 
to some extent, reproduces the logic of colonialism uh, in all of our lives. I think it's a very powerful observation uh, that's worth reflecting on. And, the, and that's a conversation we've, we're trying to contribute to, and we invite many others to join us in doing so. I think in that context, in the context of an understanding of how pr profoundly dangerous and malevolent uh, platform capitalism and its institutions and technologies, when, when it's being implemented by those people that Alison showed us pictures of, can be, it's also important to ask about the question of well, what forms of resistance, what alternatives are there? You know, what, what routes out of a, a, a dystopian nightmare might there be? I think Miranda's uh, made some really important points about the way in which platform capitalism subjects us all to new levels of exploitation, but also about the ways in which platforms might be used to generate new forms of solidarity. But finally, we're going to have James, I hope, uh, talk to us about what it might mean to move beyond platform capitalism towards something we might imagine as platform socialism. Over to James. Great, thank you, Nick. <coughs> thank you, Jeremy. Uh, and thank you to Luam for, who, uh, for the um, comms and organizational work. Um, my talk is going to come as a bit of a disappointment because I did write a book called Platform Socialism, which is available from all good uh, bookstores. Um, but I wanted to talk about something slightly different. Um, can you, for those who can't see me, just imagine a, a poor man's Ryan Reynolds, I think, is <laughs> what you're going for. There's a little bit of imagination, but after a, a few drinks, you, you, who knows? Um, so. I think for progressives, uh, it's, and, and, and those of us who are on the left, it, it can be very easy to look for kind of heroic and exemplary forms of, of resistance and struggle. We're looking for examples that kind of can be used as prototypes that might be followed in, in other cases. I want to talk about something slightly different today. Um, I want to talk about something more everyday and mundane, the kind of experiences that a lot of platform workers have on, on platforms. It's not particularly promising, but I think it can illuminate in, in many ways some of the deep barriers uh, that are facing worker solidarity in the digital economy. So I'd like to draw on some of my own empirical work over the past year or two with two types of labor, um, domestic work that's been organized by digital platforms that kind of touches upon some of Miranda's expertise, uh, and also micro work, which is a kind of work that you could take undertake on platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk, kind of like piecework, requesters put tasks up and you can do them and you get paid a few cents per task and, and, and it goes on like that. It's often how data gets annotated for AI systems, how academic surveys get filled out and, and other things like that. So what do these two types of labor have in common? The first is the isolation. They occur in private homes, either of the employer or of the person themselves working from their own home. Um, second, they're quite gendered. Um, unlike the male-dominated industries of, of food delivery and ride hail, um, you know, these sectors have a much higher proportion of women doing, doing the work. Third, workers in them aren't able very easily uh, to communicate with one another. Their experiences aren't able to be shared in the same way. You aren't able to gather around a water cool or even some kind of public place where you might hang out outside a McDonald's or another restaurant. Um, and so this makes it difficult not only for workers to organize politically, um, but even to have any kind of shared experience together to understand what it is to have a common condition and, and a structural condition that is caused by the platforms and, and by the, the nature of the work. So 
I think when we talk about practical questions about how to act in solidarity, what solidarity means, we're really attuned to thinking about very institutionalized, very politicized forms of, of solidarity, of union membership, of strikes, of, of other forms of support. But you know, these forms can most often be quite confrontational, adversarial. Um, and you know, on the left, we are you know, used to thinking about this as a kind of movement towards some kind of revolutionary subject, right? Or, or at the very least, some kind of growth of worker power and solidarity. And when you said that, you know, writing papers doesn't actually build worker power, as Michael Jordan would say, I took that personally. Um, but I think you're right, it, it, it actually doesn't. So um, over the past couple of years, I've talked with over 100 workers, right? Just doing interviews for various projects and, and things like that. And, out of all the workers I talked to, not a single one was a union member. Not a single person belonged to any kind of collective organization. And when I did ask them about collective action, organization, solidarity support, the one thing nearly almost everyone mentioned was the Facebook and WhatsApp groups that they were members of. The closest experience that I, I would say from my experience with platform workers that people have to any most kinds of political solidarity is the social connection and support they receive by organizing with with other workers and by by reaching out for those kind of common forms of both emotional but also social and, and economic support um micro workers would share experiences of which requesters were bad what types of jobs to accept how to help new people in the industry um, domestic workers would share stories of problems they were having with families, they would seek advice, they might even have acts of, of, of solidarity in giving economic support. Um, and I think one of the interesting, well, I think there are three possible implications of this and, and what I think we can reflect on. The first is that this nature of the isolation and, and the fragmentation is a direct result of a structural feature of the platforms. It's designed that way. The whole idea of designing platforms like this is precisely to prohibit contact between workers, right? They don't want workers talking to each other because it makes it more difficult for them to be exploited and used. Micro-work platforms in particular specifically invisibilize the work of individual workers so that they can become replaceable cogs in the machine, right? You never even hear what worker it is, they're given a number, um, their, their contribution to a project is never properly acknowledged. They don't have employment contracts and, and, and the, the, the rest, right? Second, and what I was continually struck by, uh, is not only the absence of, of political sol solidarity, but the kind of experience they therefore have of work was shocking, right? And I think this is what really threw me, was most micro-workers don't see their work on the platform as real work. I think platform work, and, and here I think is the big observation, that there's a risk that we get to a common understanding that there are jobs and there's platform work, and platform work is not deserving of a real wage, of, of the conditions and and um, standards that we would expect, right? So people were actually, I mean, this is what really struck me, they were very willing to be paid below a minimum wage because they didn't conceptualize it as work. And I think this has spillover, spillover effects into creative labor, into anyone doing online work, into, into a whole range of different industries, particularly those that are, that are very feminized and racialized. Um, and so I think that is, is a kind of something that is a real structural barrier to, to new forms of solidarity. Um, third, and when you look at the form of solidarity that is happening um, in the gig economy, they tend to be in very specific sectors, right? Um, the, the big high profile things we often hear about are 
like delivery, food delivery riders, um, things that are quite sometimes difficult to generalize to other parts of the economy. So Miranda was talking before about the Nanny Solidarity Network, and of, of course there are these um, examples of workers acting in solidarity with each other in a whole wide range of industries, but I don't think there is a kind of one-size-fits-all model for how platform work can be organised or how platform workers can, can show solidarity, because I don't think the different types of platform labour are, are necessarily comparable. So this isn't to say, you know, it's been a bit of a dark moment. I know I was supposed to talk to about socialism and, you know, the coming revolution, but I've done a lot of that last year and I'm tired of it. I'm, you know, it's a I've evolved. I'm a darker version of what I was before. I'm like a dark Charizard now. Um, I don't know why I would assume I'm more like the, the, the Ratatata or one of the grass level Pokemon. I don't know why I assumed I would be the Charizard. Obviously, I'm not the Charizard. I'm like a, a low-level creature. Um, but I don't think these level, uh, this form of collective action isn't possible. I think it's very possible that it's, you know, we see examples of it all the time. But I think we need to ask these tough questions about the structural barriers in order to better understand how new forms of worker solidarity might arise today. Thank you. Well, thanks to all the speakers for excellent timing. A very diverse panel. We've got exactly 30 minutes for Q&A. I'll probably, because I'm imagining there'll be a lot of questions, I'll probably take three at a time, and then we'll put it back to the panel. Um, there are two mics uh, rowing around, so just put your hand up and someone will come to you with a mic. Uh, first person was a gentleman over there, and then the person here, and then the person there. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Right, thank you. Um... My question is, um, given that the technology is out of the bottle and it really can't be put back, where in a heavily overcrowded school curriculum and overworked parents, where can the younger generation get awareness of digital literacy to sort the we from the chap. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. I, I used to teach the John F. Kennedy case. And many years ago, just a few years into the internet, I had to give up because so many of the people receiving the courses were had swallowed um, the digital nonsense that is out there about that case. Okay, thank that's you. That's a great point. That's, that's over 20 years ago. Yeah. Great point, thank you. Next question, please. Thanks, uh, my name is Ben Grasta, <coughs> former LSE student, and you actually helped me with my dissertation, so thank you, Nick. <laughs> so for the last couple of years, I worked at the Signals Network. It's a whistleblower support organization um, and we worked with whistleblowers in the tech sector and tried to kind of support them on their journey to hold companies accountable and also to generally kind of build worker power through different tools, resources, events, expertise. 
Um, one of the whistleblowers we've worked with was actually this uh, gentleman, Daniel, from South Africa, who was a content moderator for Facebook, but through an outsourced uh, method. Um, and so he was paid $2 an hour to work in Kenya, horrible conditions, all of the things that content moderators go through. Um, and basically, he was fired very easily um, with no really rec recourse. Um, and so, you know, Silic employees in Silicon Valley were able to kind of force changes both for benefits and also kind of in what platforms did because of their ability to organize and raise concerns in the kind of capital of the platforms in Silicon Valley. And so I'm really curious what you think that um, kind of outsourced workers that are so core to the platform but have so little power can do to kind of hold these companies accountable because we worked with him for a year on it and it's very difficult and we didn't really have much expertise. We were kind of trying to bootstrap it. So any uh, kind of suggestions you have for the outsourced workforce to hold the companies accountable? Great, thanks. Well, th three contrasting questions. The new digital literacy, what trade unions, how should they change, and then outsource activism. Who wants to go first? P maybe pick one question if you like to pick on. Um, to keep moving. Um, just a quick thought on the uh, digital union mobilization. Um, the first point is something that I think uh, Miranda picked very, uh, uh, very briefly, and I should uh, uh, emphasize as well that um, digital mobilization on its own is very difficult to have any kind of meaning, especially to people who are, uh, uh, who are involved in, uh, in claim making. So uh, I, I think union digital mobilization will be successful in any f possible form if on the ground and in the workplaces uh, 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 there are strong networks. Um, um, the other way that it can be successful, I think, is by um, linking to, um, uh, to grassroots networks. And I have seen that, for example, in Haringey, where I live, there is a local network where all the uh, unions are participating alongside grassroots organizations. And a lot of the mobilization there is taking place on social media, is, uh, is organized on social media. But um, this kind of mobilization is successful, I think, because it avoids the top-down uh, format of using that kind of panoptical uh, perspective and links and actually uses the digital uh, uh, possibilities to organize on different levels in, um, in environments of trust that involve um, a physical uh, compresence and also relations of trust that you build with other partners. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, um, I wish I had the answers to the second and third questions. Um, yeah, but I think it's really interesting what you're saying about like, how like, the mainstream unions use digital tools um, and yeah, models sort of like email mailing lists and surveys and it, it almost feels a bit like a sort of service provision model um and i think that is you know one of the like weaknesses of like larger mainstream unions is that you know because of their like size and a lot of baggage have become quite sort of top down and managerial in some ways um yeah i don't <laughs> i don't have answers to it um but i think yeah there are some really important questions around like what meaningful solidarity between different workforces look like um, and who is and isn't in your union. I don't know what sector you're organizing with, so this might not be at all relevant. Um, but even with digital tools like or digital platforms, like Maria was talking about how 
undocumented workers or most precarious members of some workforces are sort of forced onto platforms. They're also forced, you know, unable to participate in some platforms. Um, and, you know, for example, cannot be on a mailing list um, if you don't have right to work. So I think we've got to think quite creatively about, um, like, data collection and who that might put at risk. There's also something, again, this is a sort of problem, not a solution, um, but I do think that, yeah, sort of online mobilizing does cause a lot of fracture, and even within something as like, like nannying, like I've been kicked out of Facebook groups for like of other nanny organizations, and I've sort of like feel really resentful towards them. I'm like, oh, those are the those are the bad guys because they don't they're not thinking about migrant workers. And it's like, surely we need to be like building solidarity and like working really closely together with all of the unions and groups. Um, you know, even if you have like one shared aim and like some differences within that. So I do I think there's a real risk on social media of like overemphasizing like our difference um whereas like if you're at a picket line or a demo with someone you like you feel an affinity there's like shared joy um and you you feel like you're part of the same struggle in terms of the thing about outsourced workers one thing that i think there might be exciting potential for is this tool i talked about little sis you know it's, it's a really basic tool but what does it look like um to do some like power mapping of like models of ownership um, so specific companies that have a shared workforce in like different geographic locations and that's where something you know digital tools or like data has like an emancipatory potential because if you can link up with those other workers um, who ultimately have the same boss um, then you've got some potential um, for withdrawal of labor again which you lost from not being in the same workplace and that links to the question of literacy does anyone want to pick up on our first question about what types of literacy we need in this differently structured world? Um, well, I would say it's a very simple answer, but the, the limitation of the way in which di digital literacy is currently being taught in schools, and the reason I don't think it's very effective is because it, it's not very political and it's not very historical. I think it's, I mean, essentially the imagined villain of digital literacy teaching as it's taught now is, is an individual somewhere who's lying to you for some un unaccountable reason. Uh, rather than uh, a platform corporation that is encouraging that person to lie to you for the sake of extracting value from your interactions. And I think unless you're actually willing to explain to children and students and, and the wider public uh, that element of the process, then the education is always going to be sort of lack a certain criticality and, and also just not be very persuasive on a certain level. Um, but of course, that, that is a critique that could be applied to all kinds of you know things that happen in the school curriculum in terms of the social and political usefulness, but that, that's what I would say. Let's uh, move on to the next three questions. Uh, one in the front. Um, ah, there were so many at once that I'm going to go over there at the gentleman in the front and then the woman, ah, and the woman just behind it, Hannah, and then I'll come back to the other three, which I can remember where they are. Okay, so let's start here. Thank you very much for, um, for all these wonderful uh, comments presentations I have conceptual questions the first one is maybe you could present some more of your take on the term political solidarity why you chose political solidarity and what you understand solidarity to mean and also it seems to me that you talked a lot about web 2 uh, if we move that into web 3 um, and 
which you know is usually summarized under this term metaverse and so on, um, and the further fragmentation that it seems to bring. How would these solidarities play out in Web3? Okay, thanks. Then the gentleman in the front. Hello. Hello. Uh, hi, I have a question regarding the care workers. And uh, I see that a lot of uh, care workers uh, get hired from, say, care workers and also nurses get hired from specifically uh, South Asia, from India and Nepal. And, uh, and despite having, uh, you know, like the kind of conditions that you mentioned, there has been seen that there's increasing uh, nurses and care workers coming from these countries. So when they come here, what, uh, how, how then can we understand about political solidarity? Because at the same time, when they, they are leaving uh, countries like Nepal, and there's a sense of uh, liberation or there's a sense of, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in terms of gender. Uh, and then at the same time, when we speak about not having political solidarity here, how do we talk about both of these things together, basically? Okay, thanks. And then right behind, please. Thank you so much um, for your insights on this topic. One thing particularly struck me, I think that you James said which was that platform work isn't actually considered real work and I had had that thought for a long time I mean as a student I used to do platform work copywriting and sort of on demand really underpaid and I could never pinpoint why I didn't actually consider it a job why do you think that is and also what do you think needs to happen to make people realize that actually everything that sort of pays the bills is a job and what would the consequences be for that workforce in terms of confidence, self-perception, organization, potentially. I want to bring in Alison and James. You haven't spoken. That last question is obviously aimed at you. But Alison, do you want to pick up on the point about what all this could mean for the Web 3.0, maybe the next stage of your <laughs> um, Yeah, I'll, I'll try and just make some uh, comments. So I think it was Jen's idea that it's political solidarity. So I was being a bit facetious when I was talking about Solidarity, but I don't know if you can really call it solidarity. Um, the idea of the metaverse, or uh, they're sort of linked to what, what the questions earlier that these platforms are made, they're ma made within surveillance capitalism, or surveillance capitalism is the ideology that drives them. So they're made for marketing and made for advertising, and this is what drives how data is collected and aggregated and, and used. So what would a platform look like that wasn't? That wasn't made in that, in that with the, with the structured by surveillance capitalism, and maybe that's where we need to look in terms of thinking about how they can function, as, in terms of solidarity and political solidarity. Um, one one thing that was struck was was when Mark Zuckerberg was sort of did his big metaverse sort of thing. He was at home. He was in his home, and home features a lot in his celebrity assemblage. But also, we were thinking about the home or the household as this patriarchal architecture that seemed to structure these corporations with the patriarch at the top. And it sort of links to what you were saying over there about feminized labor and how you don't feel that the work made in the home is work and therefore deserves to be paid. Well, in the structure of the household, the woman, in the, uh, the woman at work wasn't, she wasn't paid. And these sort of, these ideologies still, you know, past is still stuffed into the present and still has these uh, Thanks. Potent mm. legacies. Thanks. James, do you want to come back? Yeah, to the sure. Um, I think it, part of the reason why some people have this attitude is due to the technology, right? That it's part of this, sorry, sir. 
as part of this kind of technical wizardry that you're like, oh, we're, we're not a, you know, um, taxi company, we're an, a technology company, we're just selling software. And so I think part of that is like the sell that we've all had has been, you know, this, this isn't work, this is you connecting, this is you sharing, this is you meeting new people and having something on the side. But I think the way to push back against that in the same way that we would in, in academia or in care work or in sex work or in any of these things is to say, all of these things are work, that is labor, that must be remunerated. And we have a collective understanding of the laws in which should be placed to, to have minimum standards and conditions around that. And there are no exceptions. Even if you like it, it's still labor. Even if you're just a student, it's still labor. Even if you're, you have another job and you're doing this, it's still labor. Um, and, and I don't think we should try to have this hierarchy where different people are kind of doing different forms of things that are considered you know, socially useful, valuable. So I don't know, just having that, that standard minimum of, you know, artists rejecting to work for free or for exposure or for something like that. Um, so yeah, I, it is a growing issue that I've seen a lot as well. So thank you for, for raising it again. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Miri or Miranda, you want to come back on any of this? Um, yeah, thank you so much for that point. I think it's really important in terms of thinking about like the political economy of care in the UK, because I talked about marketization and the erosion of worker protections, but like also how that um, fits in with like patterns of migration and our border regime, and um, like a lot of our members are Brazilian, but um, there are yeah, I know there are care workers coming from like all parts of the world, and I think Nancy Fraser talks about global care chains where you know people will leave their kids behind. Um, in their home country to come and like make money in the UK um, and send to support them remotely. And there's something about like when we plug a gap, like when Uber get, you know gets one of their drivers gets 10 hours free childcare um, from a childcare worker on an app. Then like, what does that do to their care relationships? And and so how these sort of like care deficits and these care gaps, um, which are like gaping and violent, like also extend like beyond the UK. Um, in terms of how you can, how we can think about supporting those workers, I do think there's something really important about like making sure that we've got the right demands and which workers those demands will benefit and which um, they might put more at risk. Um, so there's definitely something about like calls for regulation and, <clears throat> sorry, for example, like if we, you know, better regulation on a platform might seem like a way of, um, you know, you could say people need to have like be offset registered um, and you need to like track it better to make sure that people have like better pay and protections but that might also mean um, that some people can no longer use that platform um, and they've suddenly lost like the income that they rely on and like might end up on the streets might have to leave the UK you know like so I think those are really tricky questions that we need to like hold at the forefront um, of what we're asking for uh, in terms of the question of like, what about when it doesn't feel like work? Yeah, it's so hard. And I was just thinking about, I, I actually offered like four hours ago to do some play work for free. And I'm like, why did I do that? Um, but it was because like, I was like, oh, I want to do it. <laughs> like, I really like those children. Um, <laughs> they're great, they're really fun. And, and I really wanted to help that person out. Um, 
but it can it's a real barrier to solidarity and to worker organizing and definitely in terms of like across the childcare sector like not just the nannying sector like the guilt associated with striking it's like you're a monster like are you just gonna like leave a child to starve you also physically can't <laughs> strike from looking after a baby um so yeah you know recognizing that those things are labor um there is a form of exploitation but also that like sometimes something is labor but it's also other things um like it's also love <laughs> and like when we we don't have to just understand um our caring relationships through the lens of labor and i think i've fallen into the trap of that before being like I'm not going to, like, call my friend because that's emotional labour or, like, if my aunt asked me to babysit, that's, that's like... Yeah, it's, it is work, but it's also, like, being human and being in community. So you can hold both those ways of thinking about it at once. Uh, we've got three questions already held over, that lady there in the, the green top who I was expecting, and then we have, I think, Sonia uh, and then John, Jonathan. We'll take those three. If we get time for a final question, we will, but let's see how we go. You first, please. I just want to hammer down one of the previous questions. I'm drawing from how Jeremy explained that platforms are the winner of the 21st century, particularly a group of five or six corporations. How do we, as part of the other group, perform political solidarity which encompasses all aspects of issues. Is it necessary to coordinate political solidarity among a wide range of issues collectively? If no, why? If yes, how to ideally collectively coordinate that? Thank you. Next one was Sonia. Um, thank you. Um, I wanted to actually um, pick up on the point Miranda Hall just made about um, regulation um, and um, express a concern that um, about the thread running through the panel on resistance, um, which um, um, I struggle, just as you struggle with um, nannies and babies perhaps, I struggle with thinking about it in relation to the work I do, which is on children and the way which they're being platformed through edtech platforms. Um, they are platformed as it were um, from the age of four or five or whatever it's we could talk about resistance but mainly we talk about regulation and so I suppose my question really is about how much how you see regulation playing in relation to resistance do you have hopes that there is enormous efforts going on to regulate platforms precisely to put human values ethical values um, opportunities for solidarity in there but it is a very different kind of debate than the one we've had tonight. And I wonder if you see merit in bringing them together or are you intentionally, as it were, creating a different kind of um, discourse? Okay. Space. All right. And then we have a third question. I think it's Jonathan over there. No. Um, thanks for the, uh, the, the great speeches, everyone. This one's actually a problem I face in my own organizing, so it'd be great if, if you could offer uh, an answer. I'm a student here, but I'm also an organizer in a group called London Renters Union, which is a bunch of renters that organize for better housing conditions and, and for political change. And we suffer very similar problems to micro workers and nannies in that we're both spatially and temporally separated um, and you can't organize in traditional senses. And so often we have to rely on things like WhatsApp and Twitter to actually organize and use these digital platforms. But part of the problem is some of the most vulnerable marginalized people are digitally excluded. And so there's this double bind of uh, you're spatially separated from them, but they also don't have access to these platforms. And so how do you kind of resolve this contradiction of the people who need to use the platforms because that's the only way they can organize actually don't have access to them? 
Thank you. Great, thanks. Um, who wants to go first? Mary, you haven't had a chance in the queue. And then do you want to come pitch in on any of these? Thank you. Um, Ooh, okay, the regulation uh, okay. point? Uh, a couple of points. Uh, just to the last point about you know the, the digital exclusion, I don't think we actually touched upon it, but of course those of us who, who are working um, or are being activists at the margins, we know that digital exclusion exists in all different ways. Um, I, I think even more so this reminds us of the importance of thinking of not thinking of the digital as either a utopia or a space that exists outside uh, the physical space, right? And a lot of mobilization and actually a lot of effective mobilization is taking, I think, uh, place in physical spaces and there is a political also an ethical implication on emphasizing how important the physical uh, uh, space is. Um, in terms of regulation, I, I would leave um, uh, I'll leave it to Miranda to, uh, to answer the more specific elements of Sonia's question, but uh, something that I think hopefully it relates to Sonia's question, but also to some other points that I want to make uh, before we conclude, is that w uh, when we think about regulation and, um, um, and rights, <laughs> um, it's very important also to think about all the people who are um, perhaps, perhaps affected in different ways uh, from the erosion or threats to freedom, to autonomy, the uh, um, explosion of exploitation in platforms and so on, to think about labor rights, but also to think about political rights. And many of the people who are the most exploited that I think different people uh, spoke about are the people who are also not having political rights. So I, I, I think it will help a lot to, to set a, a bar in relation to solidarity mobilization, protection in, uh, when it comes to regulation, to have at least everyone on that seven, uh, same level of having at least those fundamental rights. Thank you. Miranda, do you want to come back to the, the point that was directed at you? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I definitely don't mean to like set up regulation and resistance as sort of like alternative paradigms. Like, you know, I guess with like both those forms of but you know you're aiming for the same thing right which is like in the context of the of work you want like better pay better protections better control better life um i think that regulation is one really important tool um for achieving pay and protections i think that you know resistance if, if we mean like organizing um is one way of winning more regulations um i guess the what I was trying to raise is the sort of unintended consequences um, of like how demands for increased regulations might play out um, in the context of the hostile environment, like Miria says, in terms of who is like excluded from the benefits um, of those protections. Um, and when, so when we, you know, with the right to work um, and the illegal working offence, it means that like certain workers, like, do not have access um, to like the minimum wage or holiday or sick pay in the way that others do. So how do we bring that into the conversation in terms of like broadening our demands? But yeah, I see it as both important tools in the same struggle. Um, well, of course the answer is yes. Uh, I would, there is no formulaic answer that I can give that will, sort of, that will give an answer, generate an answer to the question in all contexts. I think, um, uh, it is necessary to coordinate political solidarity across a range of issues. There's, there's several things I have to say in, in response to this, actually. One, one is that 
uh, and this is a, something we say in the conclusion to the book, Hegemony Now. In a sense, when focusing on the question of those six corporations, on, on focusing on the question of uh, the Googles and the Facebook and, and what it means to build solidarity in relation to them, we have to take cognizance of the fact that that probably isn't the most urgent political issue on the planet right now. Right now, it's more urgent that we deal with the fossil fuel sector. You know, it's more issue. I mean, I said this on a podcast recently. If we don't ab find a way to effectively abolish Saudi Arabia within probably within my lifetime, the, the planet is doomed. So. Uh, the political, really from a broad progressive perspective and a broadly realistic perspective, I think our orientation towards those six companies, the platform companies, has to be strategic in many ways to the extent that I, my own view is that realistically we have to find some way of disaggregating that block, uh, isolating the sections of the, the least regressive sections of tech, building, for building uh, relationships with them, and um, you know we have to we have to draw that wedge which we already see there that Alison showed is that 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 fissure between the you know um, yeah Apple and Google and, and Thiel we have to kind of work on those divisions and work on and find ways of working on them because I don't think we're going to abolish Silicon Valley or abolish the capitalist class globally before we have to get rid of fossil fuels basically unfortunately as much but also we have it, we we can only exercise effective leverage on them by building up the capacity of workers in those sectors, by building a capacity to exercise, um, you know, to, to exercise conventional and, and new forms of workers' power in the face of them. I think, to answer in very casual terms, this sort of broad question of, well, how do you build these relations of solidarity? How, do, how can we build relations of solidarity in the 21st century? And to answer the question which was asked a few minutes ago about, well, what, well how does one conceptualize solidarity as such? Um, I do have, I mean, I'm, I've just started working on a, a book about the idea of solidarity, and, uh, and it partly follows on from arguments we make in the book Hegemony Now. And my argument is that solidarity has to be conceptualized always primarily in terms of a, a consciousness of shared interests, rather than as being understood in terms of a kind of moral discourse or, or a sort of um, a moral appeal, a consciousness of shared interests. And I think the point, to some extent, the utility, the political utility of the analyses made by people like Neria and Nick that draw our attention to the extent to which uh, platform capitalism is extending forms of exploitation which have historically been experienced by very marginalized groups into the life worlds and working lives of the vast majority of people is that that can be, that should be the basis for a new experience of, of, the sh of shared interest, of the mutuality of interest between refugees, migrants and even groups of the workforce that have been historically relatively privileged. I think it's cultivating a consciousness of the of the sharedness of those interests the mutuality of those interests which has to be the basis for any kind of project of reform or regulation and I, I would also say i always think this, this issue of regulation is very important but i always feel the need to say in this context that the entire reason i personally regard myself as a historical materialist is not because of an ethical basis it's not because of a utopian politics it's because my own study of the history of reform throughout the modern period, really going back to the 18th century, has led me to the conclusion that regulation always follows resistance. It doesn't precede it, and it doesn't happen without it. It's the great liberal progressivist myth, which is still being perpetuated by colleagues like Shoshana Zuboff when she writes about surveillance capitalism, that somehow regulation happens because intelligent, clever people who went to Harvard have decided it's a good idea. This, it's not that I don't. It's not a matter. It's not a matter of hypothesis that I don't believe that to be true. It just doesn't match the historical record. 
The historical record is you only get effective regulation after you've had some measure of effective resistance, which is why collective resistance is necessary. Not because it's nice, not because it's exciting, because you don't get even minimal regulatory reform without it. Thank you very much, Jeremy. The resistance begins, I think. <laughs> so, um, we, we have run out of time, unfortunately, we could go on. But this, remember, is just the start of a whole series of events we're planning. Look out for platform solidarity. There should be some drinks outside, so you can talk to the speakers. I hope they're there. I couldn't hear them, but hopefully there's some drinks. We look forward to meeting you, but thank you very much for coming for your questions. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.